I mean, I, I do feel being called Alan is like a, 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 a <laughs> With liability the in life. But there's two L's, isn't there? Yeah, it's two L's. And a a lot, like, like, like Ginsburg. But nonetheless, nobody, there's never going to be like an action hero called Alan. Nobody follows General <laughs> Alan into a battle. What would be a good first name for you? Pierre. Yeah, it feels a bit French. I'm not sure I could pull off Pierre, but there's got to be something better than Alan. My wife actually, like, she records on the telly when she sees this. Like, any time a sitcom wants to instantly establish that somebody's wife is about to cheat on them. Alan. There's a group of them. Alan. Nigel. Nigel. Colin Barry. 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 Colin. Trevor. Barry. Trevor. Yeah, Trevor, my builder. Anyway, we ready? We ready? Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Andy Orion, alongside me is my co-host Pippa Sturt. Hi Andy. And today we are joined by Alan Simpson. Alan is a Managing Director of Strategy and Operations at London and Partners, uh, which is a fabulous organisation uh, where he leads the organisation's financial operation, governance, functions, strategy, research and corporate affairs, like lots of stuff. You do lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Yeah, very important. So we always like to start with this, Alan. Um, what is keeping you up at night at the moment? The future of cities is the big thing, and not just for me, but for everyone. Because you, you, we went into the pandemic, and I've got this incredibly strong memory of the day when we had to send everybody home, right? And I remember standing on a table in the middle of the office and calling everybody around and saying, guys, you've got to get your laptops, we're going to be going home at some point. So I don't know how long, four, two, three weeks, whatever, but get your laptops. People were crying. The thought of being on their own at home for two, three weeks. They've come out of the pandemic... And everyone's like, I'm not leaving the house. I'm going to stay in my house. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm not going to involve myself in my local economy. I'm not going to involve myself in, in my local... I'm going to stay where I am. it's seriously become an issue for a lot of people, actually. Yeah. But there are a lot of people out there that won't leave the house. But don't you feel it's a bit like exercise? It's not something you want to do. But once you start doing it, you're like, how did I not do this? It's such an important thing. Totally. But the other thing is there's a social contract to living in a city, right? Because if you're sat in your townhouse in Clapham or wherever, and you're squatting in that house, but you're not involving yourself in the economy of the city. That breaks the social contract. The economy of London does not work if we're not in it every day. And I really feel strongly that if you live in a city and you want to be a part of a city, you have a responsibility to really be part of a city. And I feel like as we've come out of the pandemic, we've broken that social contract in a way which is incredibly, incredibly frightening. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of putting it. The, the, the reason I live in a city is I never want to not live on a tube line. But that's the contract you're talking about, is that I go and see things, I do things. You don't just hide in your hole. Yeah, the, the, so the thing, if you want to have the cafe you like, the the restaurant you, you and your partner like going to, the theatres, the whatever, the thing that is London, if you want Soho to look like Soho, you've got to go to Soho. You can't sit in your house and once every three months think, I'm going to have a night out, go out to Soho and expect it to be there. Yeah, but there are two issues there. Well, at least one issue, which is you need the distributable profits, if you like. You need the money, personally, mm. to be able to go and do that. And if you went out in Soho every night, it would take about a week and a half for you to be bankrupt. No, totally. But if we, if we as a city all go out enough, all of us, this is the social contract. Like, not every night, because, I mean, you know, it's expensive to buy a drink. But, you know, you go out enough, then between us we keep it running. Like, the, the thing that is London is built on the economic assumption that people who live in London go out and enjoy London. And if you don't, it will not be there. Do you not think it's come back a bit? Yeah, it, has a, yeah, it definitely has a bit. We've bounced back. We're at, I mean, it depends. There are days of the week we're at over 100% of 2019 levels. Tuesday, right? Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah, but yeah. yesterday I went, I had to get something from Nike and I went up Oxford Street at like, 
half past six, seven o'clock yesterday evening. Yeah. And I had to fight my that's, way. That's the Elizabeth line, Oxford though, isn't it? Oxford Street is off the hook suddenly. It's packed again. But only on certain days. Yeah. And here's the thing. So there are some days where you get there and it's really busy, definitely. But across a week, really, it's still not. There's, a, there's so many layers, though. There's one layer, which is that people are sort of eating at home more. You know, you, you go to other cities and sometimes they don't have kitchens. Like, places like, um, if you go to Malaysia, you know, they all eat out all the time. Yeah. Hong Kong. And it's like London, it's almost, we've, we've become this, like, so good at the king, so we've started eating eat, eating in. The other thing is that I feel we, we almost need to get better at it. I'm really torn on it. As a big hip-hop fan, I find it grotesque the way America presents money. And it's like, I oh, just spend money. And it's about spending money and materialism. So we really play it down here. It's like, for whatever our culture came to the conclusion that if you've got it, hide it, you know, and don't show it off to people because it doesn't make anyone happy. But in a weird way, we need to get a bit more joyous about spending money and going for it because the trickle-down effect doesn't exist if fucking people with money are like tight ass and just part investing. Of that, part of what I think lockdown did, and I, I do think it's a problem for restaurants and bars, is that certainly for, if you just take me, before lockdown, I would probably eat out about five to seven times a week. Like never cooked, probably didn't ever eat at home or very rarely ate at home. And then lockdown happened and we all had to suddenly learn how to cook and start cooking stuff at home. And part of that has been really nice because now I'll go out to dinner maybe once a week and think oh, this is a bit exciting and a bit unusual. And yeah. you, like you've got the thrill back of going out and doing stuff. And I think lots of people have, have, have started to go out again, but just not quite as much as they did. Yeah, and and of course, that what that means, because if you just take restaurants as an example, the, the margins are so thin yeah, in it's a restaurant. Terrible. Like actually just running a restaurant is hard. They and you have to pay a premium before you get the site. Yeah. Then you've got to pay huge amounts of money to fit out the site. They're, they're paying pre-pandemic rents, pretty much. So even if you go out five times a month, not six times a month, if we all do that, it goes wrong. So this, this, this is the thing, you know, this is the paradox of thrift, isn't it? You know, if you save money because you're being thrifty, that means you're not spending it in my business. I have less money. Therefore, I'm thrifty with what I spend in your business. Yeah, yeah. And we're no, all we're fucked. Money in an economy doesn't behave like money in your bank account, right? So if we if we all save money, and actually, of course, you know, that's slight, slightly um, artificial way of looking at it because demand's come back ahead of supply, hence inflation. But we are in a situation where people are spending money differently and not as much. So... Some of that's in obvious ways, right? So we are going to the cinema less, we're watching Netflix more. We're ordering in, we're not going out as much. This changes the dynamic of the city. Now, one of the things that that means is that if you order in Deliveroo all the time, you don't go out to your restaurants as much. Well, why does that restaurant bother having a site on the high street? They'll just have a dark kitchen. But yeah, it doesn't. I've, I've got loads of clients that have switched to dark kitchens. But something something naturally normally happens, which is that what happens is loads of businesses go out of business. That's terrible. Then we get these spare plots, rents descend. And then what happens is the musicians move in because there's warehouses and spaces they can play in. Then the cool kids come. Then it's just a massive cycle. It Sadly, could be like, that's not what happens, though. What happens is you get an empty plot on, say, Oxford Street. Who moves in? An American sweet shop. Yeah, that's and bizarre. Then all of that. We'll just end up with like huge rows of American. I guess, but I guess everywhere. the question I'm trying to ask is: Do you think 
this thing will fix itself out of natural. Like London's London, it's it's fucking not going there's a, anywhere. There's is a kind it? of Schumpeterish creative destruction where the old model breaks and the new one comes What's in. What's Schumpeter? So uh, Schumpeter, the economist, who talks about this idea of creative destruction. That let, let's say you've got a high street, you've got two fish and chip shops on. Well, you've got a fish and chip shop on the high street. It's fine, right? Somebody else opens another fish and chip shop. You haven't doubled the market for fish and chips, right? So what will happen is the better fish and chip shop will win. Yeah, and that competition. Or the cheaper fish improved. and chip shop will But win. that's a version of better. Mm. Because if it's the same standard yeah, but yeah. cheaper, that's still better. So you, you end up over time with the market replacing incumbents with better options, right? This is true, but it's only economically better. It's not socially better. It's not culturally better. So if you can make more money, or is it economically better to run a dark kitchen in a warehouse around the back of town and deliver it to people than it is to run the shop on the high street? You don't run the shop on the high street. What happens is that shuts... Now, maybe you get what you're talking about, which is a bit like, um, you know, in Japan, when they break a, a vase, they don't chuck it away. The break is the beauty. So the fix is the beauty. So culture can be like that. Yeah. You, go to, you go to Budapest and those ruin bars in, in the yeah. old town in Budapest where this incredible culture has spread up around the ruin or of arguably the city. blitz in the holes it put in the city and yeah. what's grown up out of that. But if if the replacement is things delivered to your house while you squat in your house, that's economically efficient. I'm not sure it's culturally good. I don't want to be in my house. Sometimes I feel like we uh, we watch The Matrix, saw everyone in their little pods and thought, let's do that. Yeah, that looks fun. It's rubbish. Um, I heard a good, interesting guy talk about it, about anti-fragile. He's really some clever guy who's written a book. And and the whole his whole thing is that if you look at, analyze stuff, he's a very clever man, what you need is anti-fragility. So that is don't be in a warm environment all the time. It's quite a hard concept to accept, but it's the opposite. It's like what humans really need is stress, but not stress that kills them, a yeah. bit of it all the time. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. And But let, let's talk about this in, in its most fundamental form, which is work and place. So in the middle of the 20th century, for the first time, we had a situation where we were outsourcing blue-collar jobs. So, uh, you know, the the great fabric factories in Leicester, those jobs went to Bangladesh and elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw a situation where there's the fam- famous elephant curve of how much people's income across the world have um, Im- improved. Yeah, everyone got richer. So, well, so, so what happened really interestingly is that the very bottom of the income distribution across the world didn't really, because they weren't connected to globalization. Places like Bangladesh, which managed to connect into that um, globalization process, became richer. The industrialized areas in the developed economy didn't get richer. The middle classes did get richer. And then you had this big trunk, which is rich people in the West getting a lot richer. So it looks like an elephant. It's the elephant curve. So that's what happened in in the middle of the 20th century. And you can, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to Brexit later. That sort of is felt to account for some of that sort of idea of the left behind groups in the West, right? The Rust Belt and the US equivalents in, in the UK. We are now in a situation where it is likely to be possible to outsource white collar jobs in a way it hasn't been. Because previously, the job and the place for white-collar jobs have been intricately linked. But here's the thing. If you're working from home and you say to your boss, I don't need to come into the office. I can do my job perfectly adequately from home. Fine. 
Well, in the first instance, if you can do if you can do your job in Brighton and it's a London-based job, well, why don't I pay you Brighton yeah. wages, right? But the bigger thing is, why doesn't your boss hear, okay, fine, I can employ you or your equivalent in Shenzhen, in Singapore, exactly. or anywhere else. Exactly. And suddenly you're, you're opening yourself up to wage arbitrage across the world. No, this is what happened in conversations because you know, it was kind of my old man, but you know, we believe we're a team. We've got to be, to be the best team we have. We've got, we, we went through a rationale, but exactly that point, when suddenly someone proposes you the point, even when you like him, you go through exactly that mentally. You're like, okay, so wait, you want to live in a really cheap area of this country and I have this downside because now you're not part of my community and that has a, has a cost yeah. to be. So, so at the moment, the, the discussion is always the boss wants you in the office, the employee kind of doesn't want to come back, right? That, that's, the, that's the basic yeah, dynamic. Boss. It's entirely intuitive that we get to a point in two years' time where big firms like KPMG, whoever, realise that there are lots of qualified accountants in India. And if they're not going to be in Canary Wharf, why do you care whether they're in Hove or in Bangalore. There is one really important reason why you care, and that is culture and language. being able to communicate. Yeah, deeper than language. Real, like, you know, India's a fantastic example. British and Indians get on well. We've got a good sense of humour. But they have a very different approach into yes and no as us, yes and no. And I, we have a, we are actually ruthless in our contract. If I, you know, I cannot think of it. If, if, if today we've met for the first time and I said to you, I was going to do something that was something you needed to be done. And I said I was going to get it done and then I didn't do it. it, it it's like, that's it. That's the end of the relationship. It's like, you better fucking have a good reason. But, you know, so what would you tell to businesses? What do they need to do? Or, you know, this is a good point. What I'd say is this. Place matters, right? There are advantages to being in the office. In the Bank of England, people used to measure how far their office was from the governor's office in feet, and they wanted to be as close as possible. What are the advantages, really? Do so you the think? advantage, the the advantage of being in a in a place is of business. We're talking of, of business is. Let, let's imagine you're a, you're a company. What yeah. do you get by having people together? You get what a sociologist would call the strength of weak ties. So because your immediate team, you probably interact with over Teams or Zoom or whatever really well is fine because you're working together. But your chance of meeting people outside of your immediate team plummets. Oh, this is the water cooler thing. Yeah, exactly. I hate as a reference because I've never seen anyone talk at a water cooler. But the gossip anyway. in the, the gossip in the in the cafe, whatever, right? And the thing the thing about those weak ties is that they encourage innovation because you learn from each other, and it reduces conflict. And that's culture. That is culture. So that strength of weak ties is the key to being in the office together. And I think one of the things we will find is that organisations who cast themselves as high performance will expect people to be there. So the Goldman Sachs's of the world will say, no, you're coming back, because the marginal gain of you being there is worth That's it. That's kind of where we are. My question is, is it going to become a badge of honour? And it may be for different businesses or some circumstances, remote only, because people promote that, has some advantages too. We yeah. interviewed a very clever guy who runs the big remote, biggest remote conference and he made a fascinating point. He said, charisma wins in an office. He says, what's not fair is he says, I'm a very, actually a very analytical person and I, and and by getting asynchronous communication, so we're not communicating at the same time, but the Slack chat rooms with all the information and where's the discussion group got to and why are the conclusions being made? 
you know, I'm able to exert my influence far yeah. more effectively. And he was saying, you know, I'm sure you're great, Andy, chatting away in a meeting. And that is some real truth. So underneath that, your point was not that we need to have meetings together. And I would argue, actually, in a way, Zoom meetings, in a way, it depends yeah, what you're no, meeting it, about. But it's but... more, there's that barrier, particularly if you're a junior, I think. There's that barrier to you're sitting at home on Zoom or whatever, and you think, I need to ask my boss a question. And you have to take that extra step of phoning them when they might be in the middle of something else or you might be yeah, studying and you think, oh, shit, it's not that big a deal. No. I'll just decide People come myself. and see me all the time when I'm in the office say, oh, I haven't wanted to disturb you, but here's this really but, important thing yeah, that yeah. happened. When because somebody's it, sitting opposite you, they just look up and make eye contact it, and ask the question. It's inefficient. It's the thing is, and Haley, actually, I wish people wouldn't do. Say, hello, how are you? I just wish they'd ring me and start talking. Yeah, and that's what I do to them. Yeah, and that's because it's inefficient. To, it, the fact that they haven't disturbed me is they would have to disturb me. If they're in the office, yeah. they can just walk up to me well, and well, start they, talking. They can judge whether or not you can be disturbed. This Very is it. Point. So, and so this is the thing. When when people first started coming back, there was this idea that we would use the office for beanbag based whatever. And actually, what people like doing is parallel working. They like working on their thing, but with the ability to say, "Oh, what's that thing?" Plus, it's the yeah. you know, for your in groups, that sort of weird quasi domestic relationship you have with the people. You know, whose turn is it for a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah. What is this piece of jam on the desk? How did that it makes you work like harder that? in a way? You, I actually once you once you're really into your job, like. I'm sure actually all three of us are professionals. Like, I got so much done on my own, you know, because it was like, finally, I was like, ah! and I come in the office, I get disturbed, interrupted and stuff. But, you know, prior, prior to that, I think it, when everyone's working in a room, there's a real sense of like, we're yeah. doing something here. And also, you're, you're, we, we tend, as humans, to be good at deep work on our own when there's a defined thing to do and we're in Excel or whatever, mm. right? We're, we, you know, you put a towel over your head and that's fine. But actually deciding what to do, that's harder. So after, it's fine doing kind of piecework, but if you work on your own all the time, you reduce yourself to a freelancer being handed tasks. You're not, it's not good for strategy. It's not good for conflict resolution. It's not good for innovation. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Let's move on to um, a topic, I think, close to all of our hearts. So, you know, the one, London's great. We love London. And, I, and I'm sure there's other cities in the world I like, but nothing's like London. I'm sorry. You know, London has the British States, Museum. Uh, the whole world is here. It's just, it's got it. And, you know, an unarmed police. But anyway, 
what the fuck are we going to do about Brexit? Do you think, do you think, where, where, where you're on this subject? Do you think we can rejoin the customs union and just move on? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we will. I think it is what it is, at least for the time being. Because the, you know, the, the thing is on day one, you're aligned, but over time, we in Europe move away from one another and our ability to, to, to reattach. Slot back in. Where we wouldn't be joining on the same terms. There's a really interesting point to make about Brexit and the debates that led to it. So in 2015-16, I was kind of going around the southeast doing these debates for the sort of Leave Remain thing, right? right? I remember those the way that those debates shaped themselves and tended to be the same everywhere you went. But the core of both arguments, I think we would all recognise, and fundamentally, and this is important, they're both true, so you had one camp saying Europe is fundamentally undemocratic, mm-hmm. and it is right. So I spent a lot of time in Brussels. One of the best things in the end. Well, I spent a lot of time in Brussels uh, when I was in banking, and I tell you this: if you ask a senior banker, pick somebody in Brussels to have a meeting with on regulation, they don't say somebody elected. They'll tell you the president of the commission. Yeah, right, absolutely, they will. That's that's who they'll say. So the argument that that Europe is undemocratic is valid. Equally, the other argument was that's fine, but the effect of leaving will be economic damage. That's been true. So where we are is a situation where both sides feel vindicated because they were both right. The problem is that neither side has come to terms with that fact. So the the people who supported Brexit will point at the fact that Europe is absolutely moving towards more statehood. It absolutely is. It is absolutely undemocratic in the sense that we would recognise it. It's also, by the way, a far higher quality policy debate, but it is it is undemocratic. On the other hand, we can see the economic impact. We can. But the point is, this is fractal. So the UK didn't like Brussels. Fine. If you poll people in Manchester, big, global, fantastic city. They have a similar view of London as the UK did of Brussels. Poll somebody in Burnley, they think of Manchester the way Mancunians think of London. Town outside of Burnley thinks of Burnley the same way. Village outside of Burnley thinks like that. The little fella in the farm thinks that the village outside of Burnley, outside of Manchester, outside of London, outside of Brussels are snobs. It's fractal. This is about, it's about lots of things, but one of the things is perception that power rests elsewhere. There's a really good book on this by David Goodhart who wrote about Anywheres and Somewheres. It's a fantastic book. And his point is that you can crudely think of society as splitting into two halves. You've got people who are somewheres, right? These are people for whom place really matters. They live near their mum. If they went to university at all, they went to a local uni and they stayed at home while they studied, they married somebody from their high school. And place really, really matters. Then you've got anywheres who happen to live in London. It could be New York. It could be, it doesn't matter, really. They could live anywhere. At the age of 18, they went off to university. They never came back. And there's a fundamental value difference there between people who think of community and places mattering and people who don't. Wow. And it's fascinating that one of the highest correlations with Brexit vote is do you live more or less than 30 miles from the town you grew up in? And if you live more than 30 miles, you 
Londoners are different. But if you live more than 30 miles from where you were born, you voted Remain. If you live less than 30 miles, you voted Leave. The irony with Europe, I always thought, is exactly the beauty of it is actually you realize it's undemocratic, i.e., it's not short term politics. There's a whole bunch of people in Europe trying to make sensible decisions and they're coming up with probably okay stuff. But are we are islanders. I mean, don't you sort of underneath it, it's like. I don't know. But we're back at the point that you keep making, which is we shouldn't be thinking about the next two years. We should be thinking about the next 10 years yeah. and planning for that. Can't we have a plan? But if you have short-term does governments, it, doesn't that, that doesn't just, work. Don't you think a party could win? You were in politics. You can just come along and say, right, you're going to fucking like it for 10 years, but this is where we're going to get to in 10 years. And then another... If you planned over 10 years... Yeah, but you get voted out. I mean, but but in, this is an interesting, you know, if you're a free marketeer and you believe that the effect, the efficiency of the market, weeding out crappy businesses and supporting good businesses, means that over time the 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 general quality of the economy gets better. Well, the same thing does apply to politics. That actually there is something about the rough and tumble of it that means that crappy policies kind of get weeded out. Now the problem is that that's imperfect. How is that working for you? Well, I mean. Not very well. But, <laughs> but but in the same way that the market doesn't just deliver good things, it delivers economically efficient things. And sometimes they're the same thing, and often they are, but it's not necessarily the case that the best... McDonald's. Uh, I will not have anything to do with That is a very fine burger. Let's move on, but we'll just conclude on Brexit. So... We're stuck with it, you think. Uh, there's these two people who need to kind of make friends. But here's the thing. I don't think it matters that profoundly. Brexit, underneath yeah. it. So, it's not to London. London doesn't give a fuck, but what yeah. are the rest of the so, country? So look, we've got offices around the world and we use those offices to bring investment to London, right? And... There's been an interesting post-pandemic trend that before the pandemic, you knock on the door, hello, have you considered bringing your big tech company to London? Bloody hell, what have you done? No. Now, that is a second, third, fourth order problem because the pandemic's reset the geopolitics very profoundly, Ukraine as well. So Brexit is not at the top of the agenda. And there's this really, really interesting thing. So back in 2008, I remember during the pandemic, sorry, during the um, financial crisis, I was at the London Stock Exchange and we saw huge fundraising on the on the stock, massive fundraising on the stock exchange, despite the fact that London had one of the worst financial crises of anywhere in the world. Why? Flight to safety. In 2018, we were seeing exciting tech companies when we went and talked to them and said, do you want to come to London? Say, no, I'm going to go to... Stockholm, I'm going to go to Helsinki, I'm going to go to Tel Aviv. Because they were the frontier places and these people see themselves as cool. Now, those same people are saying, I'm going to go to London because there's enough risk in the global economy that I'm not, I'm not taking a risk on my expansion. I'm going to go blue chip and London is blue chip. What do you mean London is blue chip? The underpinning the, the, the London city is, is yeah, oil London and has banks. your, let's say you're a fintech. London has... If you're B2B, they've got banks to sell to. We've got the regulatory sandbox. We've got early adopting customers. Everything about the UK is blue chip. So people are de-risking and they're coming here for safety in the same way that in 2008, despite the fact that we were ground zero for the financial crisis, people still came here to raise money. So the difference between the UK and us is between the UK and the smaller what, what I'm going to call peripheral countries around the EU, is the scale of our market means that the Europe is not going to give us the same deal as they've given the others. 
So, so the, the, the assumption, the underlying assumption, if you're a kind of libertarian of Brexit, was not the same one as those somewheres I've described. It was that you reclaim your regulator, your sovereignty, and they don't mean sovereignty in a kind of flag-waving way, they mean the ability to re-regulate, and we make ourselves Singapore on Thames. Yeah. Well, one, Singapore is actually not what people think it is. You know, they have more social housing than anywhere in the world. It's actually, it's quite interventionist too. You could only say spend sovereignty once. Right. So if we want to do a trade deal with someone and we set our regulation against them, we can't then set it somewhere else. It's like trying to cover a double bed with a single duvet. You know, if we pull our regulation off towards the US, we lose access to the EU. If we pull it towards the EU, we're less competitive against the US. So the idea that you can pull out the EU and then just randomly, no, that's not how it works. You know, sovereignty is a finite resource. You spend it well. Okay, so have you got anything that you think uh, is bullshit in business? Yeah, it, it's it's back to home working. You think it's in your interest to work from home, it really isn't, and it's going to bite you on the arse. I believe that's so profound. How much home working is okay? You, you, you think it's some... Well, look, half, half and half is fine. But if, you're, if you are not in the office a lot, and you're not learning, and you're not building relationships with the people whose job it is to promote you and give you opportunities, that is going to put you at a disadvantage. Now, you can choose that. That's fine. A bit like some people choose freelancing because they like doing the work and they just want to go home and they don't want to stress. Fine. But it is not... In, if you're at the start of your career, the best place you can be is wherever your boss is. What do you think of this whole thing about four-day weeks? Yeah, I mean, it makes. I mean, the evidence is very strong about it that actually you can, you can, because we, we, let's face it, we all spend a certain amount of our day buggering about. An efficient four days and, a, and an inefficient five days look a lot like the same in terms of output. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't object. I don't object. I think it's fine. You know, moving to a four day week, three day weekend, there's a lot of evidence that that makes sense. This week I'm going to have to do it because I was on holiday yesterday. So I've got to do a five-day week and four. Don't you have the same amount of work to do each week? It's yeah, but you will. Stressful. But that's that's the thing. So a lot of people. I mean, it's hard if you're in if you're like let's say my wife's a nurse. She's actually got to be there. But there is a certain amount of evidence. If you say to somebody, "You've got four days to do something," versus you've got five days, they they do. You'll it. get it it's done just, just the same. You, you just progress switch it up. So there was this study which where they asked a group of this was what was on the radio, right? Yeah. So they've done a test like a pilot scheme with a load of different types of businesses from like software companies to fish and chip shops to all sorts of different ones. And every pretty much all of them are sticking, having done the pilot scheme, have decided to stay on four-day weeks. There was a guy saying productivity has gone up 22% in the four days. Do you remember where it was? Is this in the UK or in yeah, Norway? in the UK. In the UK. UK. It's like a little, they've taken like a little island or the area. It's like Isle of Wight or something. No, but that's no, because everybody's weird in the other point. No, it's just you know, I just I'd love it to be true. It just sounds too good to be true. But the you know, because the flip side of it as well is not only do people tend to get the work done in the time allotted to them, is they're happier because you're giving them three days off. Okay, so this quick fire questions. We're going to ask you a list of questions. Know you a little better. Five to ten seconds each. Keep it keep it pacey. Be the music. Andy will not interrupt. We're not allowed to interrupt. What was your first job? I was 11. I was laying shingle outside an old people's home in Kent. 
And after that, I worked in a cafe for many years, and then McDonald's. More on that later, I'm sure. Oh, very. Uh, what, what's your worst job? Yeah, so I worked. It just like takes slightly longer. I worked in the um, the distribution warehouse of Game, the game shop, and it was my job to put the fishing games on the shelf. Now. There's loads of them. Sega, Sega Bass Fishing, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's it's in Roman numerals, and they they put them all on the shelf according to X, X, I, V. I explained that no, those are numbers. Put them all under S for Sega Bass Fishing. It was like I was magic. And if you ever want to feel low about yourself, tell somebody that, and then watch the rest of the warehouse team stare at you for the rest of the day. <laughs> Great answer. Uh, Favorite subject at school. Uh, at school, English and history, now maths. Love maths. Big maths guy. Love yeah. it. Freak. That's strange. Um, English is... Uh, sorry. Uh, what's your special skill? I am good at seeing the big picture. So talking to people who are cleverer than me, who do different things, figuring out the relationships and pointing them out. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to write comedy. That has not happened. Nice. Um, who knows? But as of yet, no. What did your parents want you to be? I don't know. Most of my uh, family are, you know, plumbers, electricians, plasterers, that sort of thing. So something with a point to it would be nice. Something where the noun and the verb are the same. Yeah. And you can call yourself Barry or Alan. Or Alan. Alan would have worked nicely. Alan the plumber. Now it makes sense. sense. You're, you say you come from a family in that trade. So yes. they, they were giving you a good family name for, you know, Alan. He sounds like a reliable, reliable a very guy. reliable guy. Are you a lawyer? Lawyering? Same thing. My wife's a nurse. Noun and verb, same. Noun and verb. What do you do, Daddy? I don't know. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Suspicious Minds, Elvis. Oh, that used There's to be so mine. many just moved people. On. It's got about three that. notes in it, so you're yeah. fine. Uh, office dogs, business or bullshit? Well, I would say bullshit, but I can see a dog. No, you can say bullshit. So, okay, he doesn't speak that much English. Have you ever been fired? Yes, from McDonald's. Can I tell this yes. story? Yes. So, you, you cook at McDonald's, your frozen burgers in 46 seconds. 12 of them in 46 seconds is big clam shell grills. So 46 to seconds to cook a frozen... It's very efficient. Again, I'll hear nothing against the golden arches. I, and you, you have to dress the buns with this kind of gum thing for ketchup. You fill that from a dispenser on the wall, right? The dispenser on the wall, inside it, has a kind of five-litre... Um, silver foil bag of ketchup, like the inside of a wine box. I, I had one lunchtime to fill it, and I was only 16. I wasn't very strong. And I got it to about here. I realised I was neither going to get it into the wall nor back down, and I <laughs> dropped it. Smashed on the floor, splatted. Five litres of ketchup goes ev- every bloody way. <laughs> Five litres. And they had to shut it. It was about one o'clock on a Saturday. <laughs> I'm in floods of tears because I'm a 16-year-old kid. And the shift manager takes me upstairs and sort of politely suggest my future may not lie in fast food. <laughs> Gives me very kindly a Big Mac meal and a milkshake to see me on my oh, way and sends me home was to my mum. full of tomato sauce? No, I mean, it had already been made. It's the one surviving piece <laughs> of food. One, it's one building. of those things you really don't want to drop, isn't it? They sell all the stuff, Coca-Cola and that mixed together. That must be dynamite. Yeah. But year, years later, I went back doing some politics stuff and I told the, public, the, affairs, yeah, told the public affairs kid, oh, I've been sacked from this branch and the panic on the guy's face. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Yes, I've been sacked. Uh, what's your vice? Politics. Obsessive. Oh, on politics. That's one History of, practice of, polling of. Love it. 
So this week, I give you 36 pitch, I guess some London and partners, or to any businesses out there, or to London. Maybe we'll do the London pitch, whatever you want. London. Can I pitch London? Yeah, pitch London. The world is changing fundamentally, right? And we've all made the mistake of thinking place doesn't matter, but it really does. And in the next 10 years, you've got to bet on quality. And the place in the world with the biggest history of responding to change and coming out stronger is London. So if you want to move your if you want to move your business internationally and you want to do business with America, go to New York. If you want to do business with New with Europe, go to Berlin. I don't care. If you want to do business with the world, come to London. Whoa. Boom shakalaka, 27 seconds. Back of the net, Alan. <laughs> so, Alan, if our listeners want to find out more about you online or wherever, yeah. how can they do that? Well, they can Google London and Partners or Alan Simpson, but spell A-L-L-E-N. Otherwise, you'll get an American senator or one of the authors of Steptoe and Sons. Okay. Okay, that's you've Googled yourself a lot, haven't you? I have a Google alert set up, I'm not embarrassed to say. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Alan Simpson. Thank you very absolutely much. smashed it. Thank you to uh, lovely Pippa. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to Dee. And we'll be back with PWB Extra on Thursday. Until then, it is ciao.